0: Progress vs. Parasites by Douglas Carswell Part 5 What set societies free? Chapter 16 The Enlightenment and Uber-Rationalism It's an extraordinary story, isn't it? Beginning in the 17th century, people living in the Netherlands started to grow rich by taking specialisation and exchange to a whole new level. Instead of localised self-sufficiency based around farms and villages, towns started to trade far and wide, creating a regional and eventually a global trading system. Others followed. In the 18th century came first the English and then the Americans. In the 19th, the Germans and the Japanese started to go through a similar process. First, the established internal order was overturned. Out went the Habsburgs, the Stuarts, the Hanoverians, the Junkers, the Tokugawa clan. In came outside influences and exchange. In the wake of each upheaval, the productive were freed from the feudal. Trade, growth, and industrialization followed. Societies in which the productive are set free flourish. But are we any closer to understanding why some societies are free? while others continue to be ruled over by parasitic elites. It's not, as we've seen, simply down to the shape of a society's institutions. Extractive, though institutions might be in societies controlled by small elites, it's ideas that ultimately facilitate such extortion. Ideas, not institutions, account for why some societies are free while others remain feudal. The rebellious Dutch didn't just overthrow an old extractive elite. They repudiated an older way of thinking too. The Dutch ousted the Habsburgs because she was full of self-governing religious communities and towns and home to radical thinkers and rationalist thought. It's only possible to properly appreciate the English or the American revolutions if one has some insight into how the insurgents thought. They might have been separated by a century and by an open ocean, but both sets of rebels on either side of the Atlantic were animated by similar sorts of ideas, often those that emanated from Hobbes and Locke. Now, there's seldom been a shortage of clever people on hand to explain that it's clever people who account for human progress. Ever since the 18th century, a whole string of philosophers, among them Hume, Kant, Montanesque, have made much the same point about reason underlying our elevation. In our own time, Steve Pinker attributes the progress that's happened in the 19th and 20th centuries to the 18th century Enlightenment that preceded it. Are they right? Or was it the Enlightenment that set societies free and allowed them to flourish? The Age of Enlightenment saw a series of major scientific advances extending our understanding of the natural world. From the motion of the stars and planets to basic chemistry, people found rational ways of explaining the world around them. What had once seemed inexplicably mysterious, if not magical, could be understood through science. These undermined traditional structures of authority, belief and scientific thought Before the 18th century, it had been widely believed that everything worth knowing was known and was enshrined in one or other authoritative texts. The Bible, or the Quran, or the Torah, or the teachings of Confucius. As the 18th century unfolded, some started to appreciate that knowledge is in fact acquired cumulatively. Not all that can be known is yet known. Whether this was a consequence or a cause of scientific discovery can be argued either way. What is definite is that there was a slow corrosion of the old certainty of knowledge, the previous insistence on authority. Think of the Enlightenment as a kind of rebellion, or what the physicist and philosopher David Deutsch calls the rejection of authority in regard to knowledge. People came to appreciate that not everything that could be known was known. It encouraged people, in the words of the newly founded Royal Society's motto, Nullius in verba, not to take anyone's word for it. Reason replaced custom and fairy tale as a source of authority. Instead of deferring to kings, people started to insist on the authority of the people. Centuries of rule in accordance with custom and privilege gave way to rulemaking on the basis of what could be deduced to work. Soon after these subversive ideas began to percolate through certain European societies, there followed a dramatic increase in output per person. Post hoc, ergo propter hoc. The rationalist revolution in the 18th century must, many have supposed, therefore cause the industrial one in the 19th and beyond. One of the problems with the theory that the 18th century enlightenment Put us on the path to progress is that the chronology doesn't quite fit as neatly as sometimes supposed. If the 18th century enlightenment made possible the progress that followed what are we to make of earlier advances? Should we simply overlook the fact that Dutch for example achieved an even earlier industrial revolution? All too often that's precisely what's happened. Dutch economic development in the 16th and 17th century, despite being precocious and the first sustained increase in per capita output in any large society since the fall of Rome, is often simply ignored. Perhaps this is partly down to the bias of English language historians, but it also reflects the fact that there was something rather awkward about a process of takeoff that clearly precedes the 18th century Enlightenment. If forced to account for the so-called Dutch Golden Age, many historians end up treating it almost as it were an accident, a one-off, rather than a harbinger of the progress that was to come. Or else, rather than writing up Dutch economic development as being about innovation and ingenuity, they argued that improvements in Dutch incomes were somehow all a consequence of extortion in the East, even though Dutch per capita output increased before the acquisition of a Dutch empire. what about those even earlier examples of societies that achieved sustained increases in per capita output are they to be downgraded to fit the enlightenment explains everything narrative as well venice which was for several centuries in a league of her own economically and technologically is often treated by historians as just another northern italian city-state exceptional only by being built on water as with the dutch the extent of the venetian achievement is An awkward fact for those who insist it wasn't until the 18th century Enlightenment that progress became possible. Some try to get around such inconvenient chronology by extending the century of lights back into the 17th century and earlier, incorporating Renaissance and medieval humanists too. How many early Christian thinkers do we need to accept to help lay the foundations for Western thought? before we give up on the idea that the 18th century alone gave rise to rationalism, or that rationalism alone accounts for human progress. It's not even as if the 18th century was the first time that new ideas had begun to erode Europe's established order of princes and priests. 200 years before the collapse of the Ancien Régime in France, the Protestant Reformation had triggered a bloody series of uprisings against hereditary hierarchy in Germany. The leaders of the peasants' armies in early 16th century Germany issued their 12 articles, demanding the abolition of princely and priestly privilege, long before Rousseau wrote about the rights of man. Extending the Enlightenment back into the Middle Ages stretches credibility. Incorporating antiquity into it would be ridiculous. So what is one to make of the clear, compelling evidence of a sustained increase in per capita output in the Roman Republic, unsurpassed for over a millennium. Should we see Rome's ascendancy as merely a matter of conquest and military endeavour? The Roman Republic enjoyed a rise in living standards due to specialisation and exchange, and it's not possible to account for it as simply the accumulation of wealth from overseas provinces. As with the Dutch and the English, although curiously not the Americans, empire whether it proved to be a net contributor or a net drain on economic strength largely came later after the economic liftoff it's only possible to sustain the argument that human progress happened as a consequence of the 18th century enlightenment if you're prepared to ignore an awful lot of history if the enlightenment set societies free and produce progress How come things didn't quite work out that way in France, the country at the epicentre of the 18th century rationalist revolution? Contrast the two dramatic upheavals that happened towards the end of the 18th century, the first in America between 1765 and 1783, and the second in France between 1789 and 1799. Each of these revolts seemed to many at the time to be an expression of a very similar phenomenon. A rationalist rising against the old order, with the authority of kings giving way to that of the people. No one seemed more certain of the similarity between the two uprisings than Thomas Paine. Born in England in 1737, Paine emigrated to America just in time to take part in the insurrection there pamphlet, Common Sense, brilliantly articulated the case for the rebel colonies against the crown. He was widely read and, after the war, went on to become one of the founding fathers of the new republic. Shortly afterwards, on the other side of the Atlantic in France, Louis XVI's rule of rent-seeking luxury came crashing down. Years of exorbitant taxes imposed on a peasantry, taken their toll. Just as ideas about universal rights had started to percolate through French society undermining deference to hierarchy, the masses rose in revolt. The effect was explosive. In July 1789 a Parisian mob stormed the Bastille and the ancien regime fell. Feudalism was abolished and new rights and a republic proclaimed. So enthusiastic was Paine in his support of what was happening in France that he hurried across to be part of it too. He became a French citizen and an elected member of the new assembly. Yet Paine's fate demonstrates rather magnificently quite how different these two insurgencies and the ideas behind them really were. After the old regime was ousted in America, Paine had sat down alongside the other founding fathers to draft a new constitution. There are plenty of passionate arguments crammed into that Philadelphia courthouse during the summer of 1787. But the ringleaders of America's Republican revolt didn't attempt to cart each other off to the guillotine as they did in France. In Paris, in the aftermath of the revolution, one Jacobin faction tried to systematically slaughter the other. Pain in post-revolutionary Paris was arrested and sentenced to death. He only narrowly escaped with his own life when Robespierre, leader of the faction trying to have him guillotined, fell from power. Imagine for a moment if on the other side of the Atlantic, Benjamin Franklin, for example, had tried to have John Adams executed. Imagine if, after a bloodbath, George Washington had emerged, Napoleon-like, to declare himself Emperor of America. Or if he had then gone on to establish a hereditary dynasty, invading Canada, Brazil, Mexico, and establishing puppet monarchies. Yet that is what happened after the French Revolution. The Napoleonic Wars that followed were amongst the bloodiest of episodes in human history. The two revolutions in which Paine participated he came to realise were animated by profoundly different ideas that took those societies in two very different directions. In post-revolution America, Locke's notion of natural rights meant rights, at least for white male Americans, held independently of any authority. In post-revolutionary France, authority claimed legitimacy on the basis that it might impose such natural rights on everyone, a very different idea indeed. In America, power was dispersed and constrained. In the aftermath of upheaval, the Founding Fathers obsessed about how to prevent any single person or faction gaining too much power over the others. In France, power was concentrated and a dictatorship established. Our post revolutionary leaders obsessed as to how they might wield power over others in order that they might mould society according to their own conception of reason. With its cry of Liberté, égalité, fraternité, Rousseau's revolt is often, even today, seen as central to the path of progress. But it wasn't. It unleashed a tyrannical bloodbath. Rousseau argued that the interests of the individual and the whole of society could only be reconciled by what he termed a general will. This led directly to the terror. In parts of France, such as the Vendee, atrocities committed by the revolutionary armies were on a grotesque and epic scale. Frenchmen were forced to prostrate themselves before those who governed in the name of the general will. Citizens who refused to obey the dictates of reason, wrote Rousseau, must be forced to be free. Jacobinism is not part of the story of human progress. It was a blood-soaked regression and proof that rationalism does not necessarily free societies from the grip of parasitic elites. It demonstrated, tragically, not for the first time, that rationalism does not necessarily mean constraints on the powerful, but instead provides a pretext for small elites to exercise power over others. Man, wrote Rousseau, not long before the French Revolution, was everywhere in chains. The Enlightenment might have come along and cast off the old chains of faith, feudalism and hierarchy, but they went on to shackle humankind in something even more terrible. An absolutist belief in reason led to the guillotine. It later led to the gulag and the gas chamber. The overzealous application of rationalism has since the 18th century produced some of the great reversals of progress in human history. Shortly after Germany, Japan and Russia had started to industrialize, they veered off in a dramatically different direction to that taken by Holland, England and America. They did so because they, like France before them, came under the influence of those who believed in ordering society from above, according to a particular blueprint. If you believe that rationalism is what produces human progress, you're only a short way away from A very dangerous fallacy. The notion that society has to have a rationalist blueprint in order to advance at all. Ever since the 18th century, that is precisely what's happened. Reason has given rise to the illusion of absolute truth. This has produced certainty where there ought to be scepticism and doubt. Far from just undermining the authority of the old order, uber-rationalism has helped impose a new one. Instead of enabling a spontaneous economic and social order to emerge, it's encouraged small elites to arrange things by design. It wasn't just the Jacobins. Karl Marx was as much a product of the Enlightenment as any other philosopher. He built on Rousseau's critique of the division of labour, arguing not merely that the division of labour was a cause of unhappiness, but that it led to exploitation and class struggle which was, he suggested, the thing that had really inhibited progress. The leader of the Russian Revolution, Lenin, referred to his communist cadres as Jacobins connected to the proletariat. Again, a small cadre of true believers arose, claiming to be in possession of a superior set of truths to which the masses must be made to submit. This priesthood, in the Soviet Politburo rather than in the Directory in France, insisted on an authority of knowledge free from any criticism. Unless this is, this elite was given untrammeled power to act, humankind, they insisted, could not be saved. Any individual seeking to live their life on their own terms in such a society was guilty of a kind of secular sin and often punished accordingly. To act in your own interest was be to be condemned as a speculator, a hoarder, a bourgeois, or a kulak. The productive and the merchant class were vilified once again. Lenin, like Robespierre, was hostile to traders and merchants the way most pre-modern rulers had been. In most pre-modern societies, the proceeds of what people produced was transferred to an extractive elite. As Bastiat observed shortly after the French Revolution, this was often done by creating a moral code that glorified extortion. In many societies arranged according to the dictates of reason, the extractive elites went one better than glorifying forms of taxation. They simply abolished private property altogether, removing at a stroke any claim that an individual might have over what they could accumulate in their own name. What was theirs was the state's, and for state officials to do with as they wished. In the name of reason, Rousseau insisted that private property was at the root of humanity's failings, with inequality its result. The division of labour, he went on, far from being the engine by which we're elevated, was rather part of a process of degeneration. Marx took this idea even further, explaining history as a conflict between classes. Societies arranged according to these sorts of Enlightenment ideas were, unsurprisingly, not great centers of specialization and exchange. Whatever increases in output achieved by official fiat, in Russia in particular orchestrated industrialization, these were nothing like the surges in output attained elsewhere. For at least a millennium before the revolution, France had easily had the biggest economy in Europe. She was overtaken by England, Germany and others in the early 19th century and has been a second-tier economic power ever since. Soviet Russia, with a vast population and industrial output, was for a while a great power. But that outward strength, like that of the Ottomans or the Ming, was never matched by internal innovation or by impressive per capita indices, other than those that measured social decay and despair. In Germany, grotesque ideas about ordering entire continents by design were promoted by those influenced by thinkers such as Theodor Fritzik and Paul Lagarde. This led directly to the death of millions. Stefan Zweig was just one of many victims since the 18th century. Victims to the idea which took hold that society is best ordered according to some sort of rationalist design. Far from explaining why power was dispersed within certain societies, the Enlightenment generated ideas that were just as likely to concentrate it with murderous consequences. Thank you for listening to this episode of Progress vs Parasites. I'm Douglas Carswell, and I very much enjoyed talking to you about the subject of my book. If you're interested in hearing more from this series, please do listen to some of the other episodes available on my podcast.